Welcome to the official SPGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Hi folks, Alex Nicely here. Today we're going to be speaking with, well, I'm going to be speaking with, you're going to be listening to, Thomas Outhart. Thomas is now in Kansas City, Missouri, but that's not where he started out. He... He's been bouncing back and forth across the Atlantic for his entire career, having first taken his medical degree in Malta, then gone to Nebraska for initial medical, initial postgraduate medical training, then to Johns Hopkins. You can see that the man doesn't know how to hold a job. Then, what was it? To, to back to. Um, back to Nebraska. Back to, to Nebraska. I do get a little bit confused with all of the leaps and bounds. Then to Sheffield and Montreal for further training. Right. And, and the then, stint working in Malta. And in between working in Malta. Have you followed all that, people? I sure haven't. Anyhow, he now is working in the center of the United States, and as such... At I'm, at, I'm, at, I'm in Kansas um, uh, at Children's Mercy uh, in Kansas City, which actually is in Missouri, as you said. Tell us about what you told the audience to your talk at the May 2023 Vienna Annual Meeting of ESPGAN. And there you gave us a talk about use of video capsule endoscopy in Poitier syndrome. What do you want us to take away from your talk? Well, it's fantastic that you're asking me because there were actually some points which after the talk people said, why didn't you bring this up or this other thing up? So this gives me kind of a chance to fill up the holes, right? Our theology is one of redemption. There you go. Um, so as far as Pius Jaggers is concerned, um, let's just take the broad overview. Pius Jaggers is, of course, a relatively rare syndrome, one in 200,000 generally. And the idea is that these children really are born with a lot of, with a lot of disadvantage. They're, they're predisposed to getting polyps in their small intestine pretty much throughout their life, but starting as early as three years of age. We've certainly seen patients present that early with intestinal obstruction, going on to needing surgery. And then surgery after surgery after surgery actually makes further surgeries more likely. You have a significant proportion of these patients evolving into intestinal failure, um, short bowel syndrome. Along this, unfortunately, like that's not enough these patients have an extraordinarily high, about 50% likelihood of developing cancer at some stage of their, of their lives. Um, in the childhood age group, it's actually not that high. In the older age group, it does become an issue in adults. But the management of kids focuses on watching their small intestine, watching for polyps, watching for polyp growth, and then if that's happening, removing those polyps. Now we do that nowadays with enteroscopy. One of my one of my one of the things I do is double balloon enteroscopy, which allows me to go deep into the small intestine and remove polyps which can threaten to become obstructive. So uh, malignancy in kids is not really so great an issue 
as is the need to avoid intussusception, obstruction, and surgery. Right. So just to be clear, in kids, there is a, an increased risk of sertoli cell tumors, testicular tumors, or granulosa cell tumors in ovarian, um, uh, ovarian tumors, therefore. But yes, the, the driving concept in the management of kids with PJS is to avoid obstruction and therefore avoid intussusception and therefore actively essentially chase and remove small intestinal polyps. Now in the past, that's had to take the form of surgery, even laparoscopic surgery, and then we evolved into laparoscopic-assisted enteroscopy. With double balloon enteroscopy, we are able to more actively and independently go after these polyps so that there's really been a sea change in the management of these kids and their outcomes. You can see that over the last 10, 15 years. I'm happy to be ignorant about double balloon endoscopy because it gives you a chance to explain what's involved to me and possibly to members of our audience who perhaps because they're primarily nutrition-oriented or something of that sort are as unfamiliar with the idea as I am. How does that work? So, uh, you know, imagine how long the small intestine is, right? You have this, like, redundant, um, rather flimsy hose pipe measuring up to 17 feet. So it's, there's a lot of it. 17 feet for our listeners at home is 15 meters. That's right. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to go through as much of it as possible. So if you think about it, obviously we don't make scopes that are 17 feet long. So what we have to do is essentially accordion it over, so accordion the bowel over the scope. Uh -huh. So you, so then think, uh, so it's very hard without a, a diagram to explain this. Think of the scope as having a balloon at the end mm -hmm. and then also having an overtube over it. And the overtube has a balloon itself at the end. So what you're doing, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be moving the scope in, inflating the scope's balloon, pulling the scope back, inflating the overtube balloon and kind of caterpillaring through the small intestine as far as you can go. So if you do that from above and you do that from below, it's quite achievable to go through the whole small intestine. Now, when we do that, however, you can imagine it's not a very easy and pleasant experience. It takes me about five hours to, to be able to do these kind of procedures. So we don't want to do it in everybody all the time or just because we, you know, at a whim. We have to understand why we're doing it. And why we're doing it has to be in this case because there are polyps. So then the next question is, how do you know how many polyps there are, what to expect, what their size, what their distribution, and what to remove? Here's where the video capsule comes to the fore. Precisely. Lovely. Yes. So yes, you can look at the small bowel in many ways. The most crude form in the past has been a small bowel series. That's really useless in this kind of scenario. However, you can do MR enterography or CT enterography, which are radiologic modalities, of course, or you can do capsule endoscopy. Capsule endoscopy allows us to have a video feed of the whole small bowel. Now, that, of course, 
makes you able to look at very small lesions, even like three millimeters in size, you can immediately realize that that has an advantage over an MRI. An MRI won't pick that size. However, an MRI very clearly tells you where it is. And the video capsule, because it moves erratically, may not pick that up so well. So there's pros and cons to both of these. But let's focus a bit on the video capsule. Let's say, okay, how can I make a video capsule really useful? You can make a video capsule really useful probably by rereading the film, having an experienced reader and rereading the film. So imagine a study where you take this one film, because that's all you can do. You know, by film I mean the image recording. And you have one person reading it. That's going to be pretty good. But if you want to improve on that, take that same film and show it to a second reader. And if you want to be really, really good at it, show it to a third reader. And have all those readers being experienced, because the literature suggests that that's going to be your better uptake for the study. And that's what we did in our, in, in our, in our study. And why, why did we do this? We did this because in adults, we understand what the distribution of the small intestinal polyps are, how big they are, where they're at, and therefore what to expect. So if you tell me I have a 20-year-old or sorry, 25-year-old and I'm doing a, a double balloon, I can tell you, well, you know, the literature suggests that you're, this is where you're going to find most polyps and this is the size that you're going to be seeing. So that's, that was present. We don't have that in pediatrics, and that was what our study tried to address. What, so what did you find? So let's go through how we got to our study population. We used essentially two buckets. We had a repository of all our video feeds from all the video capsule endoscopies that we've done at our institution, so we looked at the 2010-2020 bracket. We searched for text within the report that allowed us to find words like putes, words like polyps, and words like polypectomy. So we searched it as a text, as a text um, uh, attribute. Once we identified those reports, those reports were reviewed to ensure that they were PJS patients, Peutz-Jeghers syndrome patients. So that gave us a first pool of studies that were PJS patients. Then separately from that, in order to maximize our uptake, we looked at our own clinical database that tracks every polyposis patient that we have. And we looked at which of our patients were PJS. So we combined the two and we could come up with our study cohort, which would therefore be it was 62, I think, or 64 studies in uh, 16 patients. But from 2010 on, were you doing double balloon endoscopy all this time? No. So we were doing double balloon enteroscopies from 2015 onwards. So if you think about it, so to be clear, the primary goal of the study was to characterize the small intestinal polyp burden in these patients. That's what we wanted. We wanted to give people a landscape of what to expect in a pediatric patient with, patient with PJS that they are using VCE, video capsule endoscopy, to understand. It was, if you want, a bonus to be able to look at what the effect of double balloon in that population would be. Now, of course, we didn't pass over that bonus, so we can talk about that. But double balloon was not the intended 
the intended endpoint or, 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 or variable. Having said that, what we did with that population was we had an the initial investigator report, so the initial clinical report, if you want, whoever read that study, which would have been an experienced endoscopist, had marked the had marked the um, images of where they saw or thought they saw polyps. Those images were seen by a second, now experienced endoscopist, who marked whether they agreed, whether they found additional ones, and then passed that on to a third investigator, usually myself, experienced capsule endoscopist. And again, I would mark if I agree and if I found any new lesions. All these, all this information, therefore, was fed into a really a categorized type of worksheet where we could classify how many polyps, where we're finding them, and what their size was. This was also coupled with another um, kind of another activity, which would be the chart review, which then would tell us things like demographics, of course, admissions, surgeries, and the occurrence of double balloon enteroscopy. Combining the two, then we have some, something of a map of how we were finding polyps in this population. Polyps in that population shifts in the distribution with age? Yes, we did try to do that, and we were unsuccessful in actually showing a transition, a number in the polyp burden with age. Quite possibly because we had intervened in some of our patients with double balloon, right? Mm, uh, well, yes, I suppose so. If, yes. uh, but in general, was were there similarities or foretastes of what you find in adults? Absolutely. So if we, um, so one of the most important concepts here is because you really want to use. Let's go back to the basics. Why do we even care? You need the video capsule endoscopy to guide your decisions on how to do your enteroscopy. Do you want to go from above? Do you want to go from below? Do you want to go at all? Or do you want to go from both? I mean, those are your decisions. So then your polyp distribution is important. And one of our findings was our polyp distribution within tertiles. So whenever you talk about VCEs, you talk in terms of dividing the small intestine into three pieces the upper, middle, and lower. And certainly anybody who does double balloons will tell you an upper double balloon is much easier than a lower. Think of a lower as a colonoscopy where the fun starts after you reach the, the terminal ileum, which is really not really where the fun starts. It's harder. So if you start off with an upper double balloon and you find that most of your lesions are within the first two tertiles, you're probably going to be able to remove all the polyps. We know from adult data that if you use VCE that way, you're going to be accurate. So when we look at our tertile distribution, our first tertile had the, had the most frequent occurrent, occurrence of polyps, meaning the zeros in that group were the lowest. Our middle tertile, however, had the highest burden of polyps, meaning when, the, when it's involved, it is most densely involved. The third tertile was the one with the least amount of polyps. So sometimes you're going to be unlucky and you're still going to have to go from below. But in many instances, you're going to be okay going from above. 
How often is VCE to be repeated in someone with this disorder? So our study could not address that, but in practice what happens is it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm going to write this down. <laughs> yeah, in practice it always depends, doesn't it? Because it depends on the trajectory. What if I told you you have five one-centimeter polyps today? Um, well, you're going to tell me, well, if you leave them alone, how big are they going to be in a year? Um, it's one thing if I say, well, they're going to be three centimeters, which is way past big. Or I'm going to say, well, maybe they're going to be 1.5 centimeters. So the, the rate of growth is a determinant of how often you want to look. Our study could not address that. Um, and also, if you do a procedure after the VCE where you're comfortable that you took out all the polyps, then why would you want to look so fast afterwards? You, you may delay that by two years, maybe. You might want to do that. You might want to do a second VCE after your polypectomy to say, you know, my trousers are probably going to stay up, but it's a good idea to have both belt and braces. Yes. Did I miss anything? I think that that's probably the best question you could ask because we actually did do double the, um, VCEs after the double balloons. And here's the upset. They were bad studies. Because, well, you think about it, the kids have had a clean-out, so we tried to take advantage of the clean-out and drop the capsule right after the double balloon. Well, guess what's happening? Right after a double balloon, there's a lot of bleeding going on. There's also floating polyps that you've resected but you've not retrieved because that's just what happens. And the kid has had anesthesia, which does bad things to your intestinal motility. So the capsule was takes catching... Takes forever to get through. Takes forever. Was having these floating polyps in front of it, which doesn't really help. And had blood in front of it and some other time. So the quality of the, double of the video capsule endoscopy after a double balloon is such that we need to move away from that. So unfortunately, the answer to your question is, if you want to know whether you've taken everything out, which is in an ideal world is what you should do, the timing for it has to be determined a bit better than just dropping it right afterwards. Dropping it right afterwards is a bad idea. I have enjoyed this conversation thoroughly, <laughs> um, and I've learned a lot. Thank you. Is, is there anything that you'd like to bring up, that you'd like to share with me and with those who are listening that we haven't touched on? Let me just, um, those are actually just a very small part of our results that I just discussed. A couple of other points, symptoms, right? So we looked at symptoms at the time of the double of the video capsule endoscopy. And what's really, really crucial to keep in mind is symptoms did not correlate with findings. So you could have tons of big polyps and you would be asymptomatic, or you can have symptoms and have very little polyps. So don't wait for symptoms to do your video capsule endoscopy. Mm -hmm. You have to determine that by some other me metric. And the other part is, aside from uh, looking at symptoms, the polyp burden. What are we really looking at? Most polyps were under 30 in number, and most polyps were under 10 millimeters in size. So those are your majority. Very few, I believe six, were greater than 40 polyps. And very few, I believe five, were greater, and we're, we're talking five out of 64 studies, um, very few were greater than uh, 20 millimeters. 
how 20 millimeters is rather subjectively taken as your cutoff for removing these polyps. Um, and one really, two, two really important points, because I was asked this after the conference, was that the the um, we'd never used patency capsules in these patients. What are patency capsules? So yes, so imagine if I'm feeding you a, a capsule that's pretty big. It's like a um, it's what we call a jelly baby. It's like right, a, right, 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 okay. right, right. It's about two centimeters. Um, horse pill. Horse pill, yes, big horse pill. Um, as it goes through your intestine, if you have narrowing, like in Crohn's disease, it can get stuck, right? So what people do is they give you a, a dummy capsule, still a horse pill, but one that if it gets stuck in the small intestine, since it has a coating of lact lact lactase or lactose, I should say, it gets digested. It so it dissolves. Melt. Exactly. So you're blocked, but then you're not blocked anymore. So if you don't pass a patency capsule, we know that the regular capsule may not pass. If you pass a patency capsule, you'll be fine. So yesterday I was asked, do you do, do, you do patency capsule in these patients? And the, the answer was no. We had no instances of, res, of retention. I'd like to refine that, though, in that it was also pointed out that maybe we should do patency capsules if people have had surgeries in the past. I think that might be prudent. Yes. So that may well be the recommendation eventually. The other point I wanted to cover was that, let's go back, what was the effect of double balloons, right? We did show that double balloons were associated with a, uh, a change, a decrease in the number and maximum size of the polyps. Wait a moment, a decrease in number or a decrease in size? Decrease in maximum size. I'm not following. So decrease in number and decrease in the maximum size. So the way we, we looked at our polyps was, it's very hard to say you have this polyp at this size. So we went by maximum size. As a matter of fact, we didn't just go by maximum size alone. We also did maximum luminal occlusion. So you see a right, polyp right, 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 in a tube right. and you say, oh, that's taking about 50% of the surface area. So that was one of our measures. And we did, by the way, show a very close correlation, a perfect correlation between the luminal occlusion and the size. So size and luminal occlusion are how you should look at the risk of obstruction. At any rate, we did show that the performance of double balloons was associated with a decrease in the size and number of polyps. Hmm. Which I think is probably the first time that people have proven that in pediatrics, if I'm not mistaken. In pediatrics, of course, in adults, it's different. One last point, very intriguing for us, because I do have a basic, in, uh, basic science interest in this. Very interestingly, females had the same number of polyps as males, but they grew slower. So we have to wonder whether there's a hormonal influence in the development and growth of these polyps, which we can obviously want to exploit for therapeutic purposes. As I said before, I've learned a lot, and I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Malta, we come back to Malta, and we come back to the idea of the song that we always ask our uh, should we say interview partners or interview subjects to, <laughs> to provide, to share with SBN members a little bit of the multiplicity 
that consists, the multiplicity of which Espigan's unity consists. What from Malta, if possible, would you like us all to hear? I think that I would probably go with what is perhaps one of the more um, melancholic songs for the Maltese, and that would be, I'll say it literally translated, the last peasant, maybe, or farmer, farmer, in this particularly picturesque valley. Uh, in Maltese, it's Lahar Bidwi Futilasel, which is a valley of honey. If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. My first piece of Maltese music, and I think from now on my favorite. Thank you again. I hope so, and thank you so very much for doing this. It, it, it allows us to expand a bit on what is a short session at Aspigan. Aspigan was extremely um, uh, gracious, allowing us to present our data um, in our meeting. Thank you. <laughs>